Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh Wall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth, and we're excited that you're with us. Like Christian said, if you are familiar face, or if it's been a long time, or if you're new, we are excited that you have joined us this morning. It's good to come together and worship, uh, to sing, and to, to meet God in this place, which is the goal of what we do on, on Sunday mornings when we gather. Our text from this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, and as, as Jana set it up, it's really Mary's response to hearing and really kind of fathoming the fact that this unexpected girl is pregnant and what that stirs up in her and what it means for us today. So I invite you to listen as we, as we hear the word of God read to us and for us. A reading from Luke 1, verse 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as this season of preparation comes to a conclusion, as this time of waiting and anticipating draws near, we pray that you speak to us, whether it is in a conversation here or a moment of connection over a meal or a text or a phone call when we desperately need it. We pray that you speak to us. Some of us come to this place in this time feeling unworthy or distracted or shameful or hurt. We pray you bring us good news of grace and restoration. Some of us come Uh, feeling confident and strong, and we pray that you give us a sense of mission and call and purpose. We come from different places, but we come for the same purpose, and that is to meet you this morning. And so, God, we pray that your presence is heavy on us here. May we listen, may we see, and may you speak to us and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everyone loves an underdog. And in many ways, this story that we're dealing with uh, that comes from the gospel of Luke, this story of Mary is really an underdog story. You know, I can, I can go through and I actually was going to start to list some underdog uh, underdog stories and tales because there's a lot of them in American society. What's funny and what I realized as I went through that work is how uh, the underdog stories that I go to are culturally and time sensitive to me. 
So the underdog stories I think of are things I heard and watched as a kid, so I think of Hoosiers. I honestly kept thinking of the movie Goonies for whatever reason. Um, Some people who are my age are giving me a a nod, so I'll take that. Uh, And and I think of movies like Rudy, right? We as as a culture, we as a people love a good underdog story. And the story moves, but the the general arc and shape throughout the whole thing is the same. And this text that we're dealing with from Luke, uh, that's sometimes called the Magnificat, sometimes it's called Mary's Song, is really an underdog story. It is a long and very rich history and tradition, especially if you grew up in the Catholic Church or if you grew up in places that had uh, formal, uh, formal and a higher sense of liturgy, there was this clear sense of what this meant. It was often sung as the choir led us in this morning, uh, and it's called the Magnificat because that's what it starts with in Latin, right, which means my soul, and that's where it comes from. It has this long tradition and history of an underdog story. But to understand that, we need to understand the story itself a little bit because this, this section shows up at the end of chapter one, but it really ties together. It's the, the ultimate section that ties together the rest of Mary's story throughout the, the rest of this gospel, the first bit at least. So it actually doesn't begin with Mary. This is the beginning in the birth and announcement of Jesus. It doesn't begin with Jesus. It actually starts uh, with the parents of Jesus's cousin. Jesus's cousin is John the Baptist. And it starts with his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, right? So it really starts... And mostly it doesn't even start with Zechariah. Joseph is mostly out of the picture for this story. This is really a story of Elizabeth and Mary and what they do. Elizabeth is interesting. Uh, so her husband, Zechariah, works as a temple priest. He gets called up and assigned for duty. And one day while he is in the temple performing his duties, sacrificing or doing whatever, he is called that he has to go into the inner sanctum kind of room. And there he meets an angel who says, you're going to have a son. And he says, no, I'm not. And he disbelieves. Uh, and he comes out uh, not in belief and he tells his wife Elizabeth, and he, he indicates to her that they're going to have a son, and she does believe. Now, what's interesting about this and what you don't always pick up is what is happening in the midst of this because Elizabeth broadly is someone who is overlooked. The ancient world was a place where your worth and certainly your understanding of what it meant to be blessed or fortunate or lucky or rich or wealthy to have the good life was dependent mostly, not solely, but mostly on one thing. And that was on your ability to have children. And while we don't know how old Elizabeth and Zechariah are, we know they're well past their prime years of having kids. The time when they wanted to be pregnant has come and gone. The time when she hoped she was pregnant has come and gone, and realistically, if you've walked with anyone who has struggled with fertility, it comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes. And this is a woman that has had her heart broken time and time again. And she finds out that she will have a son. It starts with Elizabeth, who's overlooked. If Elizabeth is one character, Mary is the other one. And while Elizabeth was on the backside of life, Mary is not. 
Elizabeth was overlooked, but Mary is a scandal. In the society and the context of the day, marriage has less to do with love. You would marry people not who you knew from childhood and you grew up with and you had always been friends with and this was going to be your lifelong partner, which is how we talk about marriage today. Marriage was often almost a contractual bond between two families. Life was hard 2,000 years ago. Death felt close. Marriage was a means by which you survived. You protected the family. You had more food. You got more things accomplished. That was the point of marriage. And in order to get married, you had to do a couple of things culturally, right? So, so women had specific roles and men had specific roles. And broadly, you got married young because you did not know when death would come. So what we know from this story is that we know that an angel appears before Mary and an angel makes a proclamation to her and she responds. But that also gives us a glimpse of the context. It's well known. I mean, all of us, if you have lived anywhere in the United States for long enough or have heard the story, we know that Mary is a virgin. But we often get certain parts of the culture wrong. And so we think of Mary as a virgin. We think of her as a young mom. And so we do what we naturally do is we take the moms that we know that are young and you shave off a couple of years. So if most people that you know have kids when they're 28, 29, 30, maybe they have them when they're 25. So you think Mary's a young mom. She's like 23, 22. But that's not the way it would have been. See, Men normally got married when they were about 17, maybe 18. Women would have gotten married when they were 14, maybe 15, maybe 13. And before that, there would be a very short period where you would actually be engaged. And before that, there would be a longer period where you were promised to be engaged. Because again, marriage and relationships are not about love and romance. They are about propagating a family and surviving the hard-fought life together. So they would have been Mary and Joseph probably would have known each other, but they wouldn't have been friends. They wouldn't have been familiar. They wouldn't have uh, been this deep, intimate bond. And Mary is not engaged to Joseph. Mary is certainly not married to Joseph. Mary is promised to be engaged to Joseph. Mary is 12 or 13. For generous, we say 14. Mary is probably a seventh grade girl. Mary can't drive a car in today's society. Mary is getting her first cell phone. And here's this girl, this woman, who is suddenly pregnant because the Spirit of God has laid upon her, and it is a scandal. For both Elizabeth, who is overlooked, and Mary, who is a scandal in the eyes of society, You could look at those scenarios and think, and honestly think, my life is ruined or it's going to come crashing down. Even if you're getting this thing that you always wanted, it's not always at the right time or the right place or what do I do? And suddenly everything has shifted. And as I read read this story and as you read through what's going on, the question that keeps coming to my mind is how do these two women respond with such faith and grace? This is not a new question or conversation. It's something that is often asked of Mary. 
right? We do it less in the Protestant tradition because we don't talk about Mary as much because it's a Catholic thing that they do. But if you think about it and put yourself in her shoes, if suddenly your world is shattered, she responds with the song we heard. And how do you do that? I didn't grow up with Advent. I grew up in basically what was a, a couple-year-old church plant. Uh, so uh, I didn't grow up with, with any part of the liturgical season or rhythm. I had Christmas and Easter, and that was it. There was nothing else that went on. There was no Pentecost. There was no Holy Week. There was nothing aside from Christmas and Easter. So I came to Advent in many ways, entirely, not in many ways, entirely as an adult. And it's been really refreshing and challenging to look at Advent without having any context for it. And why do we do these things? And what is with this? There's an author that I have been, that's been on my mind as of late called Fleming Rutledge, which is a mouthful to say, but she's a great author. She's an Episcopalian priest. And she has a book about Advent where she is reflecting on it and how we got to what we have and, and Advent's actually a very old tradition. So in the rhythms of the church, Advent is probably one of the oldest things after Easter that we celebrate. And it shows up from the early first couple hundred years. It is uh, millennia and half and change old. It is from the 300s, maybe four, maybe two. But we know it's before the fall of Constantine based on what, sh- or the rise of Constantine, which puts it before the 400s because of what shows up. And her comment is that Advent has this weird flavor because it is both longing and anticipation and there's also this sense of darkness. There is this sense that we sit and we wait. And she writes that you can picture the early Christians gathered not in places like this, but gathered in homes, gathered in groups of 30 and 40, gathering in a society that hated them, that persecuted them, that if it ever became public, what they believed would go out of their way to destroy and kill them. And you can picture them huddling in groups, singing songs and praying prayers and saying to one another, how did this happen again? How did we get here? Jesus really came and as a baby. To be honest, sometimes I struggle a bit with Advent to some degree, or I struggle... Broadly, when I look at injustice in the world or I look at brokenness or I look at things that are systemic and complex and hard and in my moments of frustration or anger or anxiety, I just want God to come and fix the whole thing. I want him to come from the top down. I want him to come and kind of wipe the slate clean and make it the way it's supposed to be. But that isn't what happened. You know, why did God choose to act this way is the question in my doubts, in my struggles. I wonder about if I were in that room sitting with early believers, God, why does it have to be this way? And the response is that he sent a baby through these two marginalized women in a little backcountry, backwater corner of the world. 
And I think he does that for a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones, I think, is he does it because it helps make us active participants in the process versus just passive observers. I think God lays things out for us and invites us in to respond versus just bringing in uh, a kingdom from afar. And that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of waiting, in the midst of anticipating, that we are called forward to engage. And called forward to interact with this reversal and revolution that Jesus begins and creates. I find it poignant that it is from someone who is labeled as overlooked or labeled as scandalous that grace enters the world. That this is a society and a culture that had very clear statements in places by which you were supposed to hear from God. There was temples, there was rules, there was priests, and it was well understood that God would speak to these people, these normally men, in the same situations again and again and again and again, and this is how we will know, and this is how we will know, and it becomes written and codified and formalized. And it also became corrupted And it became distorted. And so God, caring for humanity, caring for the people of the world, says we will make grace and we will make it anew. But he does not send it down the main avenue. He does not send it to the old voices. Instead, he sends it to two marginalized women who are in need of hope. The kingdom of God is being birthed into a world through Mary is one that where no one is overlooked and no one is scandalous. Right? This is, this is what shows up throughout and you can hear it. So this is what happens is Elizabeth becomes pregnant with the, the boy that will become John the Baptist. Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus. Mary goes and visits Elizabeth and there is this moment of connection of realizing their solidarity of standing outside of the power systems and tasting and experiencing grace and a tangible reality for what feels like or could be the first time in reality. And they have this moment of interaction and then, and then Mary erupts with this Magnificat. Mary erupts with this declaration that I just want to read again. We've done it a couple of times. But in the midst of feeling everything that you would feel, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices for he's been mindful of my humble state. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. But it is not just a personal thing for Mary. It extends outwards. I don't know how Mary would not interact with this aside from someone outside of the power stream in the margin. You know, he says, she says, for he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. Speaking of God, he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful. Mary and Elizabeth are the first people that understand that there is a great reversal coming of grace that bleeds from the margins out to the middle of where the power is. And this is a long-standing message. This is not something new. This shows up in Jesus' message all the time 
A good example of this is in Luke chapter 13, where it says the people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those, indeed, there are those who are last will be first and the first who will be last. It shows up in the Old Testament too, right? This is not a new thing. It shows up in the law and the prophets, as it often gets called. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says this, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servant, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven, and the Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. Mary and Elizabeth realize. Mary and Elizabeth taste and experience that this inbreaking kingdom is one where no one is marginalized, where no one is overlooked, where no one is ashamed. And so the question becomes, what do we do with this? What does it have to do with you and me? I actually have, have three things roughly that I think it impacts me as I've sat with this text. And I think the first one is simple and yet incredible, simple to conceive but hard to do. And that is we need to learn from Elizabeth and Mary and choose joy and not bitterness. And that is not always an easy thing to do. And I understand for some of us, we come with weight and guilt and doubt that we come with pain and hurt and shame. And this is not a performance thing. This is an orientation thing. In the midst of the circumstances I have before me, do I choose to orient my life towards joy or do I cling to my own bitterness and pain? Because that's an option we all have. We have hurts and wounds that we could hold on to forever. But God is calling to redeem and restore us. The second thing I think we do or can do, is we can join in this, this great reversal that Jesus talks about, right? And we do that through a couple of concrete ways. We join in a great reversal by creating uh, space for others, right? So if you ask yourself questions of what does that mean, it would be things like, who do you need to include during this season? Who do you need to advocate for? Who do you need to be vulnerable with? Right? If, if a reversal is coming, if a, as a friend of mine likes to put it, a hillside revolution is what Jesus is undertaking that is not conformed to the patterns and structures of this world that says, by might I am right, it is my way or the highway, but something where no one is marginalized and everyone is accepted. We need to include people. We need to make advocate for people. And we need to be vulnerable with people. And lastly, friends, I think for me, it ends with this. The incarnation is the most concrete reminder and example that I can think of that tells me that it is God with us. The relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father is not God over us, 
but is God with us? Is not God judging us, but is God with us? That God did not and does not come down from on high to tell us what to do and how to go and where to be, but God is one who is incarnated alongside of us and knows our struggles and knows our challenges and has felt our pain and comes alongside with an arm around and says this way forward. Is God with us in the good times? Is God with us in the bad times? In the moments when we gather around tables during Christmas and everything feels alive and bright? And it's the time when we gather around Christmas tables and there is an empty chair where there shouldn't be one. The song of Mary, the broad movement of God coming down to be alongside us as those early disciples would huddle in rooms and sing songs quietly and say prayers because they need to be reminded like we need to be reminded that at the end of the day, more than anything else, it is God with us. And if you find yourself and you're not sure why you're here, and you're not sure how you feel about Jesus, you're not sure how you feel about Christianity, this whole faith thing, or you find yourself on the margin or feeling ostracized, or you feel overlooked, or a scandal. Grace goes there first, and it is a constant reminder that Jesus came to be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not perfect. I am not perfect. And there is a great delight and joy in knowing that my definition is not wrapped up on what I do how I perform and what I say and the things I bungle. But it is wrapped up because you came down to be with me, to restore me, to restore us. The words you say over us or the words you said over Jesus of this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with them I am well pleased and that you came to be with us. God, whether we we feel close to you this morning or far from you, we pray that you speak to us and that you draw us in and that in you we can find comfort and rest and peace this morning. God, may this world be what it is, but transform us as agents of peace as we live out our call to one another, to our neighbors and our family. God, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.